Well, I hope some of you recognize the scripture we're about to read. Uh, it's from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is the core verse of which we founded the church. And so if you're here today for the first time, you are at the perfect Sunday. Because if you want to know what we're about, this is what we're about. So let's share in God's good word together. That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe, all those wonders and signs done through the apostles, and all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful. As they praised God, people in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Father's Day, everybody. This is where you say happy Father's Day, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. So because it's Father's Day, I want to tell you uh, a joke that my dad used to tell me on Father's Day. He would say, uh, Mark, do you know what the mama cannonball said to the papa cannonball? We're going to have a BB. Oh, and that, that a nice Father's Day joke. Dad jokes, they're terrible. Oh, did you all know there's a circus in town this weekend? It's intense. <laughs> I've got more, but you have to wait till after service. Okay. We're, we're talking about true community and a community that even puts up with dad jokes, right? That, that we actually love one another. We love one another as we are, not as we might have one another to be. And so you never know what's going to happen. We are a family of faith, and every family changes by every new member that we have. And so our family used to look one way um, before children. Then we had one boy, and then we had another boy. Noah here's with us today. And so our family looks different, and the same is worth with the church. So this week, one of my favorite things that Chantel and I get to do together is go bless babies. This is Hensley Reese Yearby. Look how little she is. She's so tiny. Or I'm so big. I'm one of the two. Uh, but anyway, uh, she belongs to Megan of the Blewett clan. And uh, we're thrilled with you all. Way to go. And so it, it's nice to meet Hensley. She's a new uh, part of our faith community. And so when I was growing up, there was this thing um, that I really struggled with. And that was, I, I was born in a parsonage family, so dad was serving Ringling when I was born, and so I grew up in Ringling, then Prattville, then Bartlesville, then Guthrie, then Fairview, then I went to Stillwater for a while while my parents went to Lawton, and then Pryor, and then back to May Avenue, Lexington, and then retired. And so the thing was, my church life doesn't look, growing up didn't look anything at all like this. And to be fair, I didn't really like church that much, uh, particularly like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Um, and, and part of it was because in, in our tradition, uh, back in those days, the pastor's family would stand with the pastor uh, as people would leave. And so as a little boy, I would have uh, old people come up to me like, oh, aren't you cute? You got something on your face. And I'd lick their thumb, and they would smell like old person breath. And then like, Ugh, and they'd clean it up. And I'm like, oh, man, I got to get out of here. Like, this is terrible stuff. Or they'd pinch my cheeks like, oh, you're so cute. And I'm like, Man, no, I got, no, I'm not going to do this. And so many of you all know my story. I, I basically did not want to have anything to do with the church for a, a number of years from about the time I was 16 to the time I was 25. Um, I, I would go, but it just, it just wasn't, 
I, I would, I, to be honest, I would sit there in the pew and I would go, there's got to be more to it than this. We, we can do better than this. That's, that, that's not, there was just this yearning inside me to be like, church has got to be better than this. And then in 1998, I went to a training about how to start churches. It was a leadership uh, conference. And I came across a description of the church that has arrested me ever since, that I just fell in love with. I remember weeping as I read these words, as I, as I heard them said over and over again, and I thought, now that is worth giving your life to. And these are the words that changed my life. And if we take them seriously, they'll change yours too. It says it actually happened. This is a paraphrase of Acts chapter 2. A community of believers decided together they would live their lives radically devoted to God. 95% devotion wasn't enough. They determined to submit fully and follow God in every way. They agreed to love one another irrationally, meeting each other's needs, making sure no brother, no sister lived without. They took off their masks so they could know and be known. It got real. Passionately concerned about those outside the family of God, they reached out to lost people regardless of the consequences. And think about that. They reached out to people outside the family of God regardless of the consequences. They prayed fervently that they would have the boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it cost them their lives. And it did. By the thousands. And they looked not to the leadership of a man or a woman, but to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Every day, they and their leaders would ask, what would the Holy Spirit want us to do? What new thing would the Holy Spirit unfold before us today? And with the Holy Spirit in charge, they worshiped God continually and honored him by using their spiritual gifts. Everyone played a critical role. Everyone was important. You are important. And around here, we're convinced it can still happen today. Amen? This is worth giving your life to. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. We're convinced it can still happen. I just want you to think for a moment what the local church would be like if its people were radically devoted to Christ irrevocably committed to one another, really there for one another, and relentlessly dedicated to reaching those outside of God's family with the good news, the really good, joyful, wonderful news of Jesus. God himself in the flesh, whose character is love. Not judgment, but love. Just think of the beauty of that for a moment. How wonderful God's kingdom is. And it is happening, friends. It is happening right here, right now. There's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. Now in Acts 2.41, before we get to our verse, something amazing happened at the day of Pentecost. The church grew from 120 to 3,000 in one day. Now, if if you study the scholars, they're going to tell you that Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, uh, probably did not have a scribe counting the exact number, right? It may or may not be exactly 3,000, but what we do know is it's a lot more than 120. That's what we're supposed to know about that, that this was a big movement. Now, some of you in this room were with us when we entered our first building over there. We were worshiping about 120 at Shine Middle School, and our first Sunday over in the new building at the time, which is now our original building, we worshiped 242. We doubled in a day, more than doubled in one day. And friends, I will tell you, what works at 120 does not work at 242. And doesn't work at 360, doesn't work at 400, doesn't work at 500, doesn't work at 600, right? Last year we finished up around 626. And the thing is, 120 and 626, night and day. I cannot imagine the sort of leadership challenges they had going from 120 to 3,000. 
right? I mean, that is, that is mind-blowing. If you're a leader of an organization or of a business, you know that there's a lot of problems with that good news, right? You've grown from 123,000, like, oh, wow, everything we've done will not work in the same way, not, not in the same way. We've got to do this differently. So in Acts 2.41, it says this, those who welcomed his message were baptized. About 3,000 persons were added. That's mind-blowing. Organizational change, for sure. And it now included new people and different kinds of people. Previously, this was largely a Jewish sect. Uh, pretty much everybody that followed Jesus were Jews. Jesus was Jewish. Um, but now they had people from all over the Roman Empire, um, Arabs, Cretans, and proselytes, which were people learning how to be a part of the Jewish faith. So now all of a sudden they've got all sorts of people. They all want to follow Jesus, but they don't have a common language. They don't have a common background. They don't have a common race. They don't have a common nationality. I mean, this is, this is a big old mess. And it was beautiful, and it changed the world. As a matter of fact, scholars now believe that it was these people from 12 to 120 to 3,000 that then grew to the majority uh, religion in the Roman Empire to where Constantine knelt his knee if he wanted to continue to reign because Christianity had exploded on the scene in ways that the world had never known uh, and, quite frankly, would never know again in the, in the same sort of way. Uh, this was real power in the early church, and, and it comes down to what we find in Acts 2.42. Now, many of you all know we're in a sermon series on what got you here won't get you there. We've been following a book uh, by um, uh, Todd Bolsinger, and uh, it's called Canoeing the Mountains. Um, and so they, they got to this Rocky Mountain range with canoes on their backs because they thought there was going to be a waterway from the Continental Divide to the Pacific Ocean, which there is not. But all they knew was like the Mississippi, that ran to the ocean. So they just figured, well, that must be what's going to happen. It did not happen. Can you imagine facing the Rockies with a canoe and going, hmm, this, this is probably not going to work. And so it's in this place. They're, they're camped out, and they're in the wilderness. And on February 11th in 1805, a sound rang out through the wilderness that neither Meriwether Lewis nor William Clark had expected to hear. You're in the wilderness. What would you think that you might hear? Grizzly bear, perhaps? Maybe the, the thunder of a waterfall, call of a bird. Now, what they hear in this wilderness is a baby's cry. Completely unexpected. Now, the baby belonged to a Native American girl who was only 16 or 17 years old at the time. And she'd actually been kidnapped from another tribe when she was only 11 or 12 years old. She now was one of, hear this, one of the wives of a French-Canadian trapper named Charbonneau. That's her baby that's crying. Lewis and Clark had hired Charbonneau as a guide through the mountains, and they asked, anybody know who this lady is? Sacagawea, right? And, and they asked her to be their interpreter to help them through this wilderness that they didn't know, but she knew. This had been her, her home before she had been kidnapped. So she's in one of the canoes, actually, when they were in the river on their way, and it was Sacagawea that saved the captain's journals, the one that had all the notes, the ones that let them know how to, how to do what they needed to do. She saved that. She was also the one that when they needed horses and they needed to be at peace uh, with a, a warring tribe, she was the one that negotiated both the peace and the horses and got them where they needed to be. And at one point, she was actually translating between, um, I think, Lewis, and she found out that the person she was translating to was her long-lost brother. You talk about God moving. God connecting. It was a remarkable, miraculous, tearful reunion. 
And later, Captain Clark would note and praise this teenage nursing mother, Sacagawea, as the pilot that took them through the country. Her baby was only two months old when they broke camp to explore the unknown. Now think about this. She did everything that these trained male soldiers did with a nursing baby. I should have preached this on Mother's Day. Right? I mean, wow. I can do everything you do with a baby. At 16, 17. And in his book, Canoeing the Mountains, um, Bolsinger writes about the early church. About the early church. Those who had neither power nor privilege in the community. These are the trustworthy guides and necessary leaders when we go off the map. They are not going into uncharted territory. They are simply going home. I mean, think about that. What made Sacagawea so powerful, so good, so necessary, was that she was simply going home into a place that none of them understood. But for her, it was natural. It was her home. Now, in the local church, this is super important. Because for me, when I'm talking about let's reach out to people outside the family of God, I have zero days of knowledge of that. Right? I was born into a parsonage life with a pastor's family. Right? I grew up with people going, hello, Brother Mark. Amen. May the blood of God cover you. Now, you try that with somebody who doesn't know religion. They're like, ew, you're covered in blood? What's amen? Have you ever heard somebody outside the faith say Amen. No, that's not their language. And so we have this insider language. We have this this thing. So the people that are most important to a new community are the people who are joining the community, particularly if they happen to be people who have not recently been of faith. That's actually how the church moves forward into the culture. The newest person in any church is, you might argue, the most important because they're still working in their natural environment. Some of you have experienced this. When you came to church, In the first few months or even a year, you would often bring a friend, somebody else who didn't have a church home. But having been in the church three, four, five, 20, 50 years, most of the people you run with are members of your church. And so you say, well, bring an unchurched friend. And you say, I don't have any unchurched friends because my friends are in the church because they're great people. And you are great people. I'm not knocking that. But the thing is, we have to be open to people outside the family of God regardless of the consequences. And I think that's what catches us sometimes. Then we think, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. But when you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the life of the early church, that's exactly what they did. I want you to think about this. The inclusion of a kidnapped teenage mother with a nursing baby who was the bride, one of many brides, of a foreigner, this French-Canadian, saved Lewis and Clark and their men. You wouldn't know the Lewis and Clark expedition if it weren't for Sacagawea. Saved them from death at the horse trade. Save their notes to know how to get them home. I mean, she saved them. Now, I can only imagine that in 1805, that racism was not, uh, you know, not a thing. Right? So if you are basically a, a load of trained white soldiers going through the wilderness, the Native Americans are your enemy, not your friends. They're afraid of them. They've been at war with them. And so does it seem like a good idea that you're going to take a 16-year-old with a crying baby of who you think is your enemy to guide you? You know they took some grief about that. That was not an easy leadership decision, but it was exactly that decision that saved them. 
So what do we do? What's, what's the lesson here for the church? What does an Acts 2 church do when we're heading into uncharted territory? And certainly we are. Uh, you, could, you could argue for sure that the church in the next 10 years is going to look more like the early church than it did the 1950s. For sure. So what do you do? You look at how that church survived. What did they do? Well, they devoted themselves, if, if you know this, say it with me, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the first thing we know about this community is it's a learning church. And, and your pastors and your staff, um, we read together, we pray together, we're in Bible study together every year. And so we want you to know when we're committed to being better pastors, uh, better preachers, better teachers, uh, better staff for you, better musicians for you, each and every year than we are the year before. And so my hope is, for those of you who've been with me a long time, certainly uh, I hope that my sermons from 1999 are not as good as the sermon that I'm about to give you today. If you think that I'm a worse preacher today than I was five years ago, don't tell anyone. (laughs) But but tell me personally, right, so I can work on it, what what that's about. We want to be a learning church. We want to be a growing church. So they devoted themselves, right, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking bread and prayers. And so this fellowship piece is this. We're connected. In Greek, this word fellowship is koinonia. And this is a transforming presence that unites different believers. It requires the Holy Spirit to take these people from all over the Roman Empire, right? From places in Africa to Spain to Germany to Turkey to Italy, all through uh, Syria, parts of Mesopotamia, all these folks coming together. You couldn't simply, you could no longer bet on ideology, You can no longer bet on race. You can no longer bet on nationality, right? This was something much bigger, much stronger, much better. And it it brought together different believers. I don't suppose it was easy then. It's not easy now. And I would submit to you that in many ways, it's much more difficult uh, to be a preacher today than it was even 10 years ago, even three years ago. Because the ideologies in our country are being more and more divided. This is true actually globally. It's not just here, right? That you have people who would rather be a part then work together. And, and it's a very dangerous thing that we have to take seriously. And the church is actually the answer. The church universal is the answer to the p- things that are breaking apart the world. But it, it'll take our best. We can't play at it. You see, fellowship is more than common beliefs. It's more than common values. It's more than common activities. So when I grew up, I, I was also, often would find myself in the fellowship hall. Ever, anybody been to a fellowship hall? I wonder if any fellowship actually happens at the fellowship hall. Or if it's just a place where you put people, you know, to do stuff. See, there's nothing wrong with activities, but those activities are to lead you to a face-to-face conversation where your mask comes off and you're real with one another. And you say, this is what I rejoice in and this is where I'm weeping. You see, the fellowship, I, I, I think actually that fellowship is more likely to happen at home, in your home, on your couch, with a friend where you get real with one another and you pray together and you bless one another. They ate together with glad and generous hearts in their homes and they gathered for worship. All right? So this thing about Acts 2 people, we're people who display a profound regard for one another's spiritual and physical well-being as a community of friends, as friends, real friends, true friends who show up for one another so that when another kid in the church hits a, hits a triple and they win the game, you are there and you're celebrating. You're lifting that kid up and you're like, yes, way to go. That's awesome. We love you. We're so glad that we're part of your family. Right? That's a great thing. But anymore, I wonder how many folks are willing to do that because they think, well, my kid struck out three times. And if I do that, it might hurt their feelings. Get over it. 
Sometimes you hit a triple, sometimes you strike out. Okay, but this person did something great, and they're part of our family, so we're going to celebrate them. We need to stop not celebrating people because we're afraid it might hurt somebody's feelings. Amen? I mean, seriously, celebrate people. Write them thank you notes. Say, wow, this is a person who goes to my church. We think they're awesome. We think they're great. And at the same time, when that same child gets cancer, you're there at the hospital. And you love them, and you pray for them, and you weep with them. And, and you walk it through with them. So whether they're hitting home runs or whether they're being diagnosed or going through treatment, you're there in both places. It's not something that you can just walk in and out of. It's something you're committed to all the way. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what true friends do. So we don't want to just be a friendly church. No, I mean, anybody can be a friendly church. That, that's not the thing. We want to be a church where we are truly friends where we belong to Christ and we really belong to one another and we're empowered to serve the world together. That's what fellowship looks like. But that only happens if we're a praying church. Acts 2 is a praying church. The people of Acts 2 were able to meet the problems of life because they had first met with God. And they weren't trying to do it on their own. The Holy Spirit was in charge and it empowered them to bless others, to guide, to be guided by the Holy Spirit and to be a people of blessing. So that we don't meet together in our, in our own strength. No, not at all. We never claim that. So we go to God before we go to the world. Any success that any church has is never about the people themselves. It's about God empowering them, blessing them. And this is one of the things that I think the modern church really struggles with. And that is that it was a reverent church. It revered God. We understood that God was the center of worship. Not us, not the preacher, not the band, uh, not the people, none of it. Not the buildings. It was God. God alone. They worshiped in the catacombs, in the streets, in their homes, wherever they could. And, and it was an expectant church. They really thought that God was going to move. They thought God was going to guide them. God was going to bring them together. And awe, some translation is fear, right, of proper respect, awe as an awesome, right, came upon everyone. They looked at things and said, wow, that's got to be God. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Now, over here, I hope they'll forgive me and still join. Uh, Kyle and Danielle are going to join today with their daughter, Audrey. And uh, Chantal and I were meeting with them earlier this week. And they, they said to us, we were praying about God to guide us into a church home where we could actually be a part of a community. And the very next day, we received a mailer from your church about Easter and your services. So we prayed, and there was the answer. And they saw that as a sign. And they started coming to our church. And they're going to join today even though they've met us. They're coming anyway. And that's great because we don't pretend that we're perfect. We don't pretend that we're better than anybody else. But we do have a place for anybody that God calls to us, don't we? The answer is yes. Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All came upon us because the Holy Spirit was moving. The Holy Spirit's still moving today, calling people to us. Um, Kyle and Danielle will be... Um, We'll make 57 new members since January. It's about two a week. God's moving, bringing people into our community. We're thankful. We're grateful for you. Welcome, welcome, friends. The other thing is it was a sharing church. It was a sharing church. They shared with each other. Nobody had any needs. You see, the thing is we are responsible to one another. We're not responsible for one another. We can't make people do this or do that. If you try, you'll just be miserable the rest of your life. So, but we are responsible to people, to love them well to do the next right thing for them that the Lord calls us to do. So we're responsible to, not responsible for, but we are truly responsible to one another. The scripture says, all who believed were together and had all things in common, 
right? My life, your life, it's connected. And we would sell our possessions and goods and distribute the, the needs to proceeds to all as any had need. Say the last part with me. As any had need. Anybody. Now, I've been the pastor here for um, I'm in my 21st year. And in that time, and I pray will always be the case forever and ever and always, that there will never be a night, never need to be a day, that a single person in our church goes hungry. I mean, unless you're fasting, but that's on you. But, but you're never going to be hungry because you don't have enough to eat. We have more than enough here for every person that claims Acts 2 membership. And, and quite frankly, we have more than enough for even that. That's why we start the food bank at Heartland, and we go to the regional food bank, and we do that work. We have more than enough, friends. That's the, that's the truth about us. That's the book on us. So my commitment to you is if you're a member of our church, you will never go hungry, and you will never be without shelter. Not a day in your life. Right? Because most of you, and myself included, have a room. Well, when my boys aren't home from college, we have an extra room. Don't you? Don't you have a guest room, most of you? Or you have a couch? There's not a single person in our church family that will ever spend a day in their car or on the street or without food. Ever. That's my commitment to you. All you got to do is say, hey, I need a place to stay tonight. We'll find you a place to stay. Hey, I need some food tonight. We'll find you food. Better yet, we'll have you over for dinner. Because that's what the early church does. They ate together with glad and generous hearts, having the goodwill of all people as any had need. You'll notice that there's not a form to figure out if you have need. There's not a committee that says, well, I think they brought that on themselves. No, we don't, we don't play that game. It's not about judgment. It's about pro- provision for any who has need. And it's really important because that's where the power is. Because here's the thing. If you go down the who gets and who doesn't get road, it all depends on who the judge is on where you fall. Because there have been seasons in my life where you go, well, wasn't that your fault, Mark? And I'd be like, yeah, it kind of was, but I'm still hungry. Right? So we, we, have to, we have to understand this. Now, I'm going to show you a video that I've only seen once. And I don't normally watch these videos. Noah, don't watch this video. Uh, because when we do watch these videos, um, we wind up with animals at our house. And so um, this comes on like your cable networks. And, and I know they're trying to raise money. But if, if you can handle this, then I'll show it to you. Uh, Dr. Davis can help you. He's a vet. And he does, doesn't bother him, I don't think, anymore. Um, maybe it does. But anyway... Uh, I, want, I want to show you this, and then I want, I want to talk to you about it. Oh. The kitties are for you, Carolyn. Oh, I know. Oh, my gosh. Doesn't that just do something to your heart? Like, I got, I got to have that. I got to have some kitties this afternoon. Like, they need a home. I need a puppy. I mean, our, you know, I mean, never let your kids see it or you have like a whole house full, right? Because there's just something when you see God's creation hurting, you, you want to change that. There's something that God puts in us that says we're people of compassion. We, we reach out to that. We, we do that. That's how he's made us as stewards of, of all the animals, of all the land, of all the world. And then I wonder to myself, particularly in, in jobs like mine where you have compassion fatigue over time, how is it? That my heart can be so hardened that when I see actual children made in the image of God in those same kind of situations, I'm not half as moved. Right? No, nobody's asking how those dogs got themselves in that situation or how the kitties got themselves. Like, are those kitties worthy of a home? You see, but somehow we're able to, we, we do that when it comes to people, the actual children of God. And we're like, 
We're, so we're moved by animal videos, but we're unmoved by the people in the world who desperately need a community to love them. I mean, how's that even possible? I love the way uh, William Barclay put it. He says this, real Christians cannot bear to have too much when others have too little. I mean, our hearts are supposed to be moved with compassion in the same way of those videos. When we see somebody who's hungry, we're supposed to stop and give them food. That's what Jesus says. As a matter of fact, he's really pointed in, in Matthew 25, if you want to check that out. It's a very difficult teaching. He says, actually, as you've done it to these, you've done it to me. If you haven't done it to them, then you haven't done it to me. And so here's the thing. Acts 2 people are people of compassion, of course, to animals, but also to each other and to people who, any, any person who would step on the campus. So that, that's the hard part. The more fun part is this. We're also a worshiping church with joy and with gladness. Worship is not supposed to be a drag. It's supposed to be this awesome. And I'm so thankful for Scott Cood and your team that each and every week we have joyful music, awesome music, celebratory music where we're praising God, going filled up to get, go out and serve the world. And so the scripture says this, day by day as they spent much time together in the temple, right, in worship, they broke bread at home as well. And ate their food with glad, what kind of hearts? Glad and generous hearts, right? And so both here and at home, this was their rule of life. This was their practice. This was their rhythm. Because worship is a resurrection practice of Easter people. We gather not to worship a martyr, but a savior. One that is risen from the dead. One that is empowering you in the power of the Holy Spirit today. This is who we are as Easter people. So the church exists both as the gathered people of God here today... And on Friday nights at one church under uh, Pastor John. But also as the scattered people. And so I want you to see a group that gathered this morning at 6 a.m. But now they're scattered to Memphis. Look like this. 33 people are headed to Memphis to work on race relations and to work on roofs of primarily African-American folks in West Memphis. If you follow the news this week at all, you know that they're having some problems with that over there. We're monitoring that very closely. We're making sure the kids are safe. But it's not going to stop us from being that witness. A blessing. People of blessing. Regardless of where it takes us. Right? So we are both a gathered church, but we're also a scattered church. In the back, you'll see Michael Simons in a blue shirt. He's only a few weeks back from Ephesus, Turkey, where he does great work uh, on our behalf, uh, largely with the Muslim community because they're 99% Muslim in Turkey. And so he shares the good news of Jesus Christ. He's back home for a few months uh, until about Labor Day. But while he's home, it'd be real easy. If I, if I was a, a, a worker in Turkey, I think I would say, like, I've done my part this year. You know? I think I'm going to sit back by the pool and relax. No, no, not Michael. He's like, when are we going to SOS? When are we going to Memphis? And so his daughter's on the trip. He's going. He's actually driving the kids through the rain right now on I-40. Pray for them. These are a great group. And they gathered at 6 in the morning. They gathered to go be scattered by the power of God to be a blessing to the world. That's what Acts 2 people do. It's what we look like. And you need to know that. So number 7, and, and this is one of my favorite parts, it is a church other people cannot help but like. Notice it doesn't say that they like each other. It doesn't say that they're uniform. It doesn't say that they hold common values. What it says is people across the street liked them too. The people at Heartland Middle School, the people at Frontier Elementary, the people at the Regional Food Bank, the people who play soccer here and baseball here and football here and the HOAs that meet here in this room, all the people that come and are blessed because we exist, they like the church. And that's what you want, 
It's not that we're just supposed to like each other and be some sort of weird holy huddle. It's that we're supposed to be such a warm witness and love into the world that people outside the church will be like, wow, I'm really glad Acts 2 is there. Our, our former bishop, Bishop Hayes, used to ask this question, would anybody notice if your church disappeared this week? I'm really happy to say that, yeah, a lot of people would notice. Thousands of people in Edmond would notice. Uh, not to mention, uh, first and foremost, the YMCA, who's, who has about 60 kids here tomorrow, and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, uh, who do wonderful work with the kids. And so, you know, yeah, they're going to notice. Uh, the schools that don't get our support are going to notice. Uh, the YMCA is going to notice. The regional food bank is going to notice. The Hope Center is going to notice. Um, ministries all around the world are going to notice if we disappeared. People outside like them. One of my uh, favorite stories on us uh, happened about three, four years ago. It was Bible school time. If you haven't been to Bible school, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. But during Bible school, one of the things that happens is you, you run out of stuff. And so you got to go buy more stuff because the kids take a lot of stuff. And so uh, Chantel and I went to Walmart. I know, courageous, right? And so we went and we were buying stuff for Bible school. And we were checking out of the line and we had our Bible school t-shirts on. And this lady stopped me and she said, well, hold on. Do you go to that church, Acts 2? And I said, maybe. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about it. Like, I don't want to say too much until I know where the conversation's going. And uh, she goes, well, I love that church. I said, oh, yes, I'm part of that church. <laughs> he said, I've never been. But everybody who ever comes through here with one of those shirts on are some of the nicest people I've ever met. They're kind. They're gracious. And they just seem like great people. They seem happy. I'm like, Whew, man, that's good. I'm like, I'm the pastor, you know, and having, you know, we've got to get it out there. But that's what we want. We want other people who've never been here to like us because of the witness of the blessing, because we're people of blessing. Now, there are two Greek words for good, right? It's not just we want to be good. Agathos in Greek is good, but kalos is good, plus lovely, plus it looks good too, plus it's attractive, plus it's winsome. So kalos is where we want to live. It's not that we want to be good people. We want to be kalos people, people that when we walk by, people go, oh, wow, I want to be a part of that. That's who we want to be. And so in Acts 2.47, it says this, they were praising God all the time and having the good will of who? All the people. All the people. Now, I wonder, do the people outside of any religious community think of you as good? Are you good news to your neighbors? Right? When, when the wind blows down the fence, do they say, well, I'm so glad I live next to them? Or do they go, oh, boy, here they come again. Oh, their dog barks all night. They let their dog poop in my yard. Um, all the things that people think that, are, that don't know us well, right? I mean, what, what kind of witness are we? To people who don't go to church. Do they think of us as judgmental? Or do they think of us as kind and loving? Do, because our witness in our neighborhood determines whether or not they think they'll be welcome here. Isn't that true? So I want you to think about being the scattered church. We're gathered here in this moment, but you're going to be scattered the other, you know, six days of the week probably. And then this is really tough in Acts 2. No division existed. Not at all. No conflicts among the friends filled with gladness. Now to be fair... By Acts 15, the wheels are off, right? And there's lots of division, and they're trying to figure that out. But in Acts 2, they're still together. The Holy Spirit is still in charge. They're listening to God. They're doing what God says to do, and they're united. No conflict there. Now, obviously, having grown to 3,000, they're going to have to figure out how to do things differently. 
But in this day, and this is what our goal is, this is where our sights are, is that we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in charge. No man, no woman. The Holy Spirit's in charge, and we go, and everybody's important, particularly those new to us. And then number eight is a church that grows. It's a growing church, and we're doing that, and I want to celebrate that with you. It's a growing church, and those who are being saved, those being saved. You might know that the language around non-religious, non-active is intentional. Right? We're not trying to just grab somebody from another church that does the kingdom no good. We're really trying to, to bring in people who need a church home. And the scripture says this, and it's day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They were in the process of coming to know the Lord. Now, here's a warning about all this. You can't do it alone. And I know this is, this is a tough idea uh, in a Western revivalist culture. But friends, there was no such thing as an individual salvation in the early church. They wouldn't understand that at all. They couldn't understand that. You see, we don't need better programs or smarter people or better looking people. What we need are people sold out for Jesus who are willing to do whatever he says and to love and welcome everybody who comes. Right? That's how you got here. You, know, you walked in. Nobody asked you whether you were worthy. We simply said, welcome. We're glad you're here. Isn't that how you came? And now we invite you to do the same for the next person who walks through the door. That we want to be known, as the scripture says, those who outdo one another in love and good works. We should really be, have a holy competition about who, who's blessing more people this week. So here's the thing. It is the transformation of all kinds of different people now united in the love of God with one another that is our witness, our whole witness. Not just an individual witness. But people will look at us as a church and go, do I want to be like them? And they're going to say yes or no to an unbelieving world. They're going to look at our love for one another our practice of heaven. And then I hope we learn from Lewis and Clark because this is really telling. When we are closed to the next new and different person, we may actually be pushing away the exact person God has sent to save us. Can you imagine if Lewis and Clark would have folded when they got pushed back from their men that said, what are you doing? This baby's going to get us killed. This baby's going to cry in the night when the Native Americans want to kill us and they're going to find our location because of this baby. Or maybe she's leading us straight into temptation. Right? Because she's the enemy. What are you doing letting her in? What are you doing listening to her? She's a kid. You, you let her on this thing with her baby, you're going to get us all killed. Don't you think that was going on in the troops? Mutiny this far away? Absolutely. This is a leadership challenge, friend. And as the church, we face the same challenge. We have to be open to the next person to walk in the door. Because it might just be the very person God's sending to change us and to bless us and to save us. So what does this look like? Well, these two guys, these are not the actual guys, but there are really, there are really two guys. One's blind, and one's confined to a wheelchair. Hal is blind, and Gus is an amputee confined to a wheelchair. Alone, they would each be what we would call a shut-in. Both in their 80s, they don't get around much. They're certainly not easily on their own. When they come to worship services, and they do come to worship services almost each week, Hal pushes Gus, right? So the blind guy pushes the amputee, and Gus directs Gus directs how. And they make their way through the parking lot at the church they attend and the patio right to their place in the pew. And Gus sits in his wheelchair and gives direction. And how pushes the wheelchair and follows Gus's lead. And together, they get to where they need to go. And together, and only together, they come to church. They couldn't make it without the other. A blind man, think of it, a blind man giving energy to a man who can't walk. And a disabled man giving Direction to a man who lacks vision. And together, they worship. They take part in community. And they offer their gifts 
and inspire the entire congregation. How? And thus. That's what it looks like. Everybody using their gift. Everyone important. So, you may think, wow, this is way too much. There's no way that I can, I can process all that. So, I get it. Let's start small. But if you do this one thing with me, I promise you it will change your life, and it may very well change the world. Simply do this. First thing in the morning, first thing before you do anything else, choose your Bible before your phone. That's it. Choose to read one scripture. Let God be the lens. Choose God first. Of course, you've got to check the email. And I know some of you are like, well, my Bible's on my phone. I get it. But I'll tell you this. When I read the Bible on my phone, it's more tempting when I see 30 emails that came in overnight. Right? So I grab my little devotional book first, and I allow God to be the lens, and then I look at the work that's before me on my phone. I recommend it to you. God has to be first. The whole reason this project works is because God's first. And then everything else goes through the lens of God. So I hope you'll try this for me. And uh, let me know how it goes for you. It's been real life-changing for me. Bible before phone. Say that with me. Bible before phone. That's simple. Let's try it this week. See how it goes. Will you pray this with me? God of wind and fire, whoever would have guessed that a ragtag band of Jewish Jesus followers could be bound together into a movement that would turn the world upside down. Do that work again in our day. Take wildly diverse people who don't naturally fit together and make a peculiar and compelling community. Beautiful because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to pray. Lord God, we thank you. That in the book of Acts chapter 2, you brought in all kinds of people from all around the world. Every nation, every tribe, every race. And you did something beautiful. Do that again with us. And when we don't even know how to pray about these things, Lord, we thank you that you taught us even that by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.